Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Henry Emmons, MD. He's a psychiatrist who integrates mind, body, and natural therapies, mindfulness, and neuroscience into his clinical work. Uh, He's the co-founder of both NaturalMentalHealth.com and JoyLab.coach, which is an online program to help people... um, develop the essential elements of, of joy. He's also the author of The Chemistry of Joy, The Chemistry of Calm, and Staying Sharp. He's a speaker, uh, workshop leader uh, to both healthcare professionals and general public. So, Henry, thank you for coming. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you would tell me a bit about your background and how you got interested in mental health. Sure. So I am a psychiatrist. I consider myself an integrative or holistic psychiatrist, which I have really been doing for most of my career. So I became interested in mental health while I was in medical school, and I was drawn to it partly because of the potential I could see even then for integrating a wide variety of my interests, nutrition, fitness, spirituality. You know, I just really, I really liked the possibility of, of approaching mental health from a really holistic perspective. So what is that perspective? What what is natural mental health? What does that mean? Well, you know, as a psychiatrist, of course, I'm called upon often to prescribe medications, you know, to manage uh, mental health conditions with primarily biological or pharmaceutical means. And I'm not against that by any means. I think there's a role for it. But very early in my career, I was able to see the limitations of that. And I think it's, it's really pretty obvious, you know, for those who look into it much at all. And so to me, it, it was just much more appealing to, to look at healing from the perspective of the whole person. So depression, for example, is, 
is a condition that I think exemplifies how important it is to take a whole person's perspective, because it really affects every aspect of who we are as human beings. And, you know, sometimes people get better with just a single intervention like medications or psychotherapy. But for many people, uh, it really requires coming at it from a lot of different angles and healing at a lot of different levels. What does that look like? Like, how do people tend to try to solve their um, depression or anxiety problems? And then what does a real solution necessitate? Well, I think it starts by by really trying to understand what the real cause is, which is not always easy. It, it might sound easy on the surface, but it, it's not it's not always. However, having said that, I do think that for many people who struggle with depression or something that looks like depression, life stressors are the biggest or one of the biggest contributors to it. So that's a really good place to start for most people. But also, you know, I see a lot of people who, who try the regular kinds of treatment and don't get better. And I think there's a few things that often get in the way. One of them is really looking at brain chemistry from a much broader perspective. And this is where I think natural therapies or, or taking a more natural approach can be super helpful. Because, you know, medications, while they're powerful, they're very limited or maybe you could say specific in what they do and how they approach brain chemistry. And that's just not always the right uh, solution. So for example, if if we're looking at the serotonin system, which is you know probably the most common thing to address in treatment, it, that is affected by a lot of different things, including uh, nutrition and and whether a person is missing a few micronutrients, for example, in their diet. Stress has a big impact on serotonin. Sleep has an impact. Digestion, um, the immune system, and you know whether there's too excess inflammation. I mean, the, all of these things kind of play together uh, in terms of function, you know, affecting the body's function at at a really fundamental level. And so we sometimes have to address. Uh, those things really systematically or holistically. Well, what are some of the um, the interventions or the methods maybe that you've developed, you know, or able to address people's issues? Like what, what are some of the top issues that you work with clients on and what does the solution look like in terms of your practice and your paradigm? Sure. Well, I always like to start uh, addressing brain chemistry through diet and nutrition, if possible, We're really focusing on the food we eat rather than supplementation at first. And I fully recognize that that's not enough for everyone. But but oftentimes, it makes a really big difference, particularly if there are issues with digestion, inflammation, or trouble with the blood sugar insulin balance. And, and so those three things need a, a little more um, investigation and teasing out, but that those are really important to try to remove those stumbling blocks to healing. When that's not enough, then I like to go to some natural therapies or, or supplementation herbs and, and nutrients before starting with medications, if at all possible. And so, you know, we might start with good diet exercise and lifestyle measures and then move toward adding some uh, really important nutrients, depending on what we think is going on or going wrong with brain chemistry. So for example, with 
with depression, I like to, to try to think in terms of three very different patterns, different ways that the condition presents itself. And the, the solutions, the nutrients that we would choose or the medications we would choose are different depending on which of those patterns it is. So I can go into that a little bit uh, if you'd like. The yeah, well, the, if you can, let's, let me start with um, depression and brain chemistry. Like, what um, what have you observed? Is, is right could, could be out of whack depending on the person. Right. So the three categories really succinctly are people whose mood is primarily anxious, or other people whose mood is primarily agitated. And I'll say a little more of what I mean by that. And then thirdly, uh, when the mood is primarily down or depressed, or maybe it's flat in that, in that case. So in my experience, by far the most common of those patterns is the anxious mood. And, and I think that's pretty self-explanatory. We've probably all been there because anxiety is so much related to stress and sleep. And, and you know, we all go through periods where we're... Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. We're stressed more. We're not sleeping well. Our body gets out of whack. And, and that, I think, is a reflection of a problem with the serotonin system. Or it could be that the, the stress and insomnia create a problem with the serotonin system. And so for that, I would recommend a, a particular kind of serotonin boosting type of diet. I'd recommend some nutrients that help the body make serotonin, and I can go into those. Um, and even exercise or even some of the spiritual practices, the meditation or mindfulness practices can be tailored to some degree uh, to try to fit with that pattern, try to get people back on track with that, with that particular uh, brain chemistry imbalance. Well, why would people have um, brain chemistry? Has anyone looked into what would cause it? And, you know, how do you know that there is a, an imbalance of brain chemistry? And how do you know that you fixed it? That's a great question. So again, th thinking holistically, you know, brain chemistry is part of how we view depression. It's not all of it. And unfortunately, I think in in the modern day treatment, oftentimes it it becomes almost entirely about brain chemistry as treated through medications. So there's some assumptions that I think are are fair to make, and that is that if a person's body or brain is stressed for too long in particular ways, it is going to result in some form of, of brain imbalance. And I, th I like to think about brain chemistry because it's a pretty straightforward, um, understandable way to think about it, but it's, it's not quite that simple. However, in terms of 
brain chemistry, we can be pretty sure that it is out of balance or off kilter if the person is still having symptoms. And so a lot of, of what I do in my practice is to try to, to find the right category of treatment approach based upon the pattern of symptoms that the person has. And there's even, you know, on my website, we have um, self-directed questionnaires that people can use to, to try to determine that. What's a common pattern, like a very, very common pattern and an example of treatment for that very common pattern? Just right. So the, the, the most common pattern is what I call an anxious depression. And it's often related to situational stresses, getting out of sync with your daily rhythm, uh, and then having trouble sleeping. Now those, those things all tend to go hand in hand. And I think of that very often as a, an issue where the serotonin system needs more support. And so what we would do for that is, you know, certainly try to address the source of stress whenever possible and or uh, try to help the person learn how to respond more effectively to that stress. So that might include some sort of mindfulness training or psychotherapy, but but really trying to step out of the the cause or the source of the stress, if at all possible. And then we would put that person on a diet that's really serotonin friendly. And that very um, broadly, that would be a diet that has kind of uh, low to moderate amounts of really high quality protein with every meal and you know, plenty of brain healthy fats, but a real emphasis on kind of long acting healthy carbohydrates. So these are things that still have fiber in them. And so the blood sugars hold steady throughout the, the, the day. So after eating, you need to have a pretty steady blood sugar for quite a while in order to absorb tryptophan, which is the amino acid that gets eventually turned into serotonin. So we want to do everything we can to support the absorption of tryptophan. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And then uh, there are certain micronutrients that are needed in order to convert tryptophan into serotonin. And the most important of those are uh, a couple of B vitamins, B6 and folic acid magnesium. And then it's really helpful to have a good healthy vitamin D level and omega-3 level. So those are kind of the basic foundational supplements. All of those can be gotten in diet if a person's really good and careful about their diet. Uh, but people who are struggling, I often find it is helpful to supplement at least for a while. And then there are a couple of other nutrients, including 5-HTP, which is a form of tryptophan, or simply L-tryptophan, that make it easier for the body to produce serotonin. So those would all be things that could be done almost in lieu of an antidepressant, a typical serotonin antidepressant. In my practice, you know, a lot of the people I see when they come to me they're already on antidepressants. And so what, what are we, and they're no longer working for them. So what we might do then is, is add those kind of similar dietary and nutritional recommendations, but supplement with maybe a smaller doses of these core nutrients to try to get the medication working better again. Oh, how does um, someone's nutritional status affect whether the medication will work or not? 
Is that a, a reason why they, they work or they stop working? Does it put the person on a path where certain nutrients get depleted if they're not supplemented while they're on it? Yes, I, I think there's a, a really common misperception that taking antidepressants fixes what's wrong with the brain chemistry. And uh, at least my, in my view, it, that is just not true. It, they, they do support the brain's ability to utilize serotonin a little more efficiently. But here's the, where the problem lies, I think. If you've got somebody whose lifestyle or stress level or diet is unfriendly to serotonin, and then you add a medication, they're going to feel better for a while. But after six months to a year, which is the typical amount of time before a medication tends to poop out, this is really, really common. I think what happens is that because you haven't done anything to really change the person's ability to restore normal serotonin function, the medication only can work as long as there's enough of those, those ingredients there to work on. And so adding some of those micronutrients I talked about, the B vitamins, magnesium, and a good source of tryptophan can give the medication something to work on again. So, you know, we, we, we do want to do something to support the person's mood, but at the same time, we want to try to address the upstream reason for why they're having a problem with their mood in the first place. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Have you seen that certain medications will deplete certain, uh, you know, other elements that are important for brain chemistry or other bodily function? Like, for instance, metformin appears to deplete B12 over time. So right. I would say that, you know, supplementation with this is important. Are there other, other items that are very important to supplement if you're on uh, psychoactive medication? Yes, I, I think there's, I think there's a high percentage of people who are relatively deficient in two or three really important micronutrients. And one of those is vitamin B6. Another is B12. And then a third is magnesium. And um, it's not always feasible to get all of those things restored through diet, even though that's that's the ideal way to do it. So I think with anybody taking antidepressants who either are not getting better or they were better for a while and then that improvement seems to be fading away, I would add those three three or four things right away. I, I might add omega-3 to that list, uh, although I usually start with the others because they're less expensive. But but trying to get those micronutrients back to normal, healthy levels can really help medications work better again. What about when, I mean, so if you have patients that have been on them for a while and they, they don't work anymore, you have to taper them off. I've, I've heard going cold turkey is very, very, very detrimental. Uh, what, going, what's your going, protocol for Yeah, no, going cold turkey from... Most antidepressants, especially the serotonin drugs, which is most antidepressants, um, it is really, really hard. If people have been on a medication for less than six months, then it's not so difficult. But if it goes for, you know, a year or two years, and certainly, you know, people who've been on them for five or 10 years, uh, they, if they want to come off the medication, it needs to be done very slowly. In my practice, I, I actually see a lot of people who, who come to me because they want help getting off medications. And so we might take a year or two to taper a medication for someone who's been on it for, you know, five or 10 years or more. 
And so I would reduce, you know, very gradually uh, living where I do in the northern part of the country. Uh, we tend to keep things steady over the fall winter months and then start reducing it again in the fall to just to try to avoid that problem with seasonal depression. And then I will usually supplement with with some of those key nutrients that I talked about. And in my practice, I prefer to use combination products so that people don't have to take a handful of different supplements. So I've got a product that's on my website, the Natural Mental Health website called uh, Relaxed Mood, which really gives people virtually everything they need in that single capsule to support the serotonin system. So we we may add that, especially if people are having some withdrawal symptoms or or recurring symptoms as they're reducing the medication. Yeah, I'm surprised that it can take so long to taper. So you're saying if you've been on something for five, 10 years, it literally can take you a year or two years to do it safely? Well, to do it really safely. You know, I think what happens to a lot of people is that they, they've been on these meds for years. They either feel fine or they feel kind of sluggish and, and emotionally flat. And so for whatever reason, they decide to come off the medication. And then if they do it too quickly, uh, even if it's over, you know, let's say two or three months, it, it's too fast for the brain to adjust to that, that rapid change in serotonin levels. And then people get uh, their their symptoms bounce back. They feel in some cases worse than they did in the first place. And and then oftentimes the conclusion is that, well, I need this medication. I just have to stay on it for the rest of my life. When in fact, what they're experiencing is just the effect of long-term or sl- kind of slow acting withdrawal. So to try to avoid that problem or, you know, people who have tried before and been unsuccessful at getting off the medication, we might do it really, really slowly. Yeah, it's, it seems just like a, I don't know, it's not even like a golden handcuffs. It's just like, a, I don't even know what it is. It just seems like a trap to be on those medications. It's terrible. Well, it, I, mean, I guess it, that's, that's why you last resort, you want to do it, you know, at all possible don't. Yeah, I mean, that that is, in my mind, that is the biggest concern about these commonly used antidepressants. And again, I, I, it's not that I'm against using them. I do use them in my practice, but I, I like to try other things first. If a person is able, you know, there are some people who, whose symptoms are so severe that they really need more potent uh, support right away. And a medication might be the right thing to do, but even then, if at all possible, I, I like to start working on you know, real long-term healing so that the medication can be pretty short-term. I've seen that, you know, people get get prescribed these, um, you know, these antidepressants and then they don't seem to work after a few weeks. They up the dose, up the dose, up the dose to the max. Then they go to another one, another one. At what point if someone's taking one of these medications, you know, and they're under your care, do you say, you know, do you try to say early, like, this is just not working or does, do they tend to work better because of your you know, your prior interventions with somebody so that therefore they're less likely to go through this escalation cycle? Like, like what do you observe when you're the one working with a person that's on these uh, medications? Right. So if I'm, if I'm prescribing, and let's just say I, I'm prescribing right from the beginning, so they, they're, they're not on a medication, they see me, I put them on a medication. I do think that 
adding some of the nutritional approaches, doing some sort of a mind-body skills program, like, like a mindfulness program, getting their body moving with exercise, all of those things will help a medication work better. I also think it's really helpful to increase the medications much more slowly than what is usually done. So in my practice, for example, I like to start people um, with about half of the typical starting dose, um, give that at least two or three weeks, and then and then maybe if needed, go up to the usual dose, but but wait a longer period of time before getting into that cycle you described of increasing and increasing and then switching meds or adding meds. Because I think that there's a window of greatest effectiveness for most of these medications. And if people are too high, they, the medication itself often begins to create some of the very symptoms you're trying to treat. And I think this is really affecting a lot of people because they, they get on too high of a dose of meds. They feel like their mood is just suppressed or flat. They don't have any energy. And, you know, it looks a lot like depression, but in fact, it might be that the medication dose has simply gone too high. So I really like to take my time only increase if needed and you know, just be more patient and then add these other things to it so that the medication gets a boost and has more to work with. Yeah, it makes sense. What areas do you still find, I don't know, like intractable or incredibly difficult to treat? Like what kind of conditions or what kind of circumstance make it, you know, uh, very likely that someone's not going to be successful versus successful? Right, right. Well, there's a, there's a couple of things that really make it a lot harder. One is if a person is also uh, using too much alcohol, you know, it, and I, I totally get that people often turn to alcohol as a way of just trying to help themselves feel better. But, you know, it is a, such a powerful depressant of brain function and mood that it's going to be really, really hard for people to recover if they're still drinking very much. So that's, that's a, a, you know, a real obstacle. I would say the, another thing that can be really tough is if people are not sleeping very well. Um, this has become such a big part of my practice because I, I just recognize that if sleep falls into place and becomes good quality and enough deep sleep and, you know, at least seven hours a night, people's chances of recovering from depression double or triple almost immediately. It's just such a remarkable thing. And, and so getting sleep on track is sometimes the very best, most important thing that we can do. I also think that it is, it is sometimes really tough for people who have been on medications for, let's just say 10 years or more, and they, they aren't working and they want to get off of them or whatever. It, it is, it is really hard and takes a lot of time to change the brain into a healthier pattern after that many years on a medication. It is not that it can't be done, but it is, it is tough and it takes time and a, a lot of persistence. What happens to someone's brain when they go through a, you know, a period of being anxious or depressed? Like what, I don't know, what's been observed over, you know, if it's a short-term thing versus turning into more of a long-term chronic thing, like what does the person's brain change fundamentally? So even if they do come back, they're kind of a changed person or like, what have you yeah. observed longitudinally? 
Well, that's actually a great question. And I, and to me, this is one of the reasons why it is so important to treat these problems early and to really try to get people not only back to where they were before, but if possible, to be feeling even better than before. Because I think if these things become chronic, whether it's severe anxiety or recurring depression or some other kind of mood disorder, they almost have a way of self-perpetuating, of, of creating their own, their own recurrence, if you will. And I think it's because you you do create new brain pathways, if you will. So just, you know, imagine that a person's never been depressed. They go through a series of two or three really severe, stressful things in their life in a pretty short period of time, and they do become depressed. This can happen to anybody, you know, whether, whatever your genetics are. That first time that it happens, it might take a tremendous amount of things going wrong to create a, a depressive episode. But in the future, you know, unless other things are done to change this dynamic, it might not take very much of a stress or life change to trigger another episode. So it's almost like you've greased the skids, so to speak. You've, you've created a, a pathway that's easy to go down again if you've been there once or twice. And, and I think if it goes on and on, if the, if the illness lasts for many months or, or years without really getting better, it, it does change the way that the brain communicates with itself, the different parts of the brain, how they speak to one another, and the way that these brain chemicals, these neurotransmitters connect with the receptors. So this, you know, it gets really complex and we really don't understand it fully. But, but I do think there's a risk of untreated uh, anxiety and depression creating further problems for people in the future. So after someone's been through X number of episodes, they, well, they seem to fall into that, that same state a lot more readily if something else bothers them or happens to them. Is that what you're saying? That is essentially what I'm saying. If nothing is done to change that pattern. And, and really, that's where it's so important to try to correct some of these underlying imbalances, if possible, to try to give people some additional ways of, you know, man managing their symptoms and caring for themselves and maybe adding some lifestyle measures in that they didn't have before, which can be so helpful. So yes, it can, it, it can really create a chronic problem unless something is done to change that pattern. What about the severity or the depth of the anxiety or the depression? You know, like each time you have, I guess, I'm just calling it an episode. Each time you have an episode, are you damaged more and more are you debilitated are you made more mentally tired so that the next time it happens it's you're kind of in a depleted state and they're maybe more susceptible to the negative effects of an event i think that that is a possibility you know just just as you described i think uh again it's it's a it's a really really strong reason to not let things go too long without addressing them uh, because yeah, it, if it gets if it gets really bad, if it really knocks people off their feet, I think it can change some things long term that might make it harder to come back from. However, having said that, I've seen people who've had really severe 
episodes of depression, panic disorder, or even bipolar illness. And, and it's gotten so bad that it really woke them up, so to speak, and motivated them to make some significant changes in their life. And people can bounce back from that and be healthier than they ever were before. It, it's by no means does it mean that, that you can't come back from it. But boy, I would use that kind of thing as a an inspiration, if you will, to, to really try to find the key that will change this pattern long term. Yeah, I just didn't know if people get, again, beat, beaten down uh, the more episodes they have. That's what a fear of mine would be. But, uh, you know, that's why I asked. Yeah, I think that is probably the rationale for continuing people on medications long term. If, if they've had multiple episodes, and I agree with this, by the way. If there's been multiple episodes of something clear cut like major depression, there comes a point where a person really ought to stay on whatever treatment works for them. Um, my biggest concern, again, about medications is that they, if they stop working and a person really needs to be on it, then you've got a problem. And so you want to do things to prevent the medication from losing its effectiveness. And that's where I think that good lifestyle measures and some of these natural therapies can be super helpful. Are your patients aware or are people aware of when they're having these, are they aware of when they're having these episodes or are they aware they just don't realize the severity of the episodes? Like, is there a misperception that people that are in an anxious or depressed or stressed state have that someone on the outside looking at them would see completely differently from the way they see um, I don't think that's as common with anxiety and depression. It is common, however, with bipolar illness. The, per the perceptions can really be off in that illness. And that can be a real detriment to getting help because people uh, just sometimes just do not recognize the, the trouble that they're in. But usually, you know, depression and anxiety, the people feel so badly mm -hmm that they they get it they recognize that this is this is really bad and i need to do something about it the the question is do they have the enough motivation and energy and focus in order to to do the things that they need to do so sometimes i think people really need extra support when they're in that that really low state um so that they can get going and and take some action that's going to help them really long term do you find that people are defensive about themselves when they're in an, you know, actively anxious or depressed or stressed or they're having, you know, bipolar problems or, or schizophrenia, whatever it may be? I mean, is there a lot of defense of self still, even if someone's having a problem or, or how does that work or manifest? You know, again, I think with anxiety and depression, I don't see that so much because I, I think people are suffering and they know they're suffering and they, they really want to feel better. And they might not initially want to see it as a mental health problem or, you know, see themselves as being depressed. And I, I get that, but they do recognize that they're, they're really struggling or they're really suffering. I think the, the problem with people who have bipolar or maybe a psychotic illness is that they don't have that insight always that, that they're, that there's something's wrong, that they're really in trouble. And that, that, that's tough because then, you know, they may not be willing to make any changes or even, you know, take any kind of medication for something like that. Well, very good. What's the best way for people to find out more about your work 
and if they're, I guess, local to you or if they're a candidate to work with you, you know, what are some resources for listeners? Right. Well, I think the, the best place to learn about what we've been talking about today is to go to my website, which is naturalmentalhealth.com. And we have lots of free information there and help people determine what is their subtype of depression or anxiety and what sorts of lifestyle, you know, diet, exercise approaches to sleep are going to be best for them. If people want to learn more about uh, really dig into a good mind-body skills approach and and really learn how to use meditation to not only to recover from something like this, but to, to really try to thrive, to feel better than you did before in order to protect yourself from a recurrence. Then I would recommend people go to my newer website, which is called joylab.coach. Okay. Well, very good. Henry, thank you for uh, for all the insight on the call. I really appreciate speaking with you. Well, Richard, it's been great. I, I applaud you for your work, and I, I hope, uh, hope this is helpful to people. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.